Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode of Other People is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy for you to create your own professional website or online portfolio. And now, using Squarespace logo, you can also create your own logo. This is a terrific service, and it keeps growing. They keep offering new and exciting things. It's very easy to use. Packages start at just $8 a month, and you get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Also, every single website design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that will match the overall style of your website so your content will always look great on every device, every time. So let's do this. Start a trial right now, no credit card required, and start building your website. Visit squarespace.com, and when you go to Squarespace, be sure to use the offer code OTHERPEOPLE. Again, that offer code is OTHERPEOPLE. You do that, you get 10% off. Go to squarespace.com right away and take advantage of this offer. It's the best way to build or improve your web presence. Squarespace, it's everything you need to create an exceptional website. So go and create one. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jeez, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is organized noise. This is recorded in a room with one window. How are you? What's happening? My name is Brad Listy. I'm reporting to you from Los Angeles, California, as usual. It's nice to be with you. Uh, I have some very good news to share. The podcast, this podcast, uh, now has a brand new website. It was just launched on uh, St. Patrick's Day. The site itself uh, has been redesigned and uh, expanded. And it also has a new web address. So formerly, uh, the site could be found at otherpeoplepod.com, which if you've been listening to this show uh, for any number of episodes, you've probably heard me say before. Uh, the new address is otherppl.com, otherppl.com. But rest assured that if you go to the old address, it'll just bounce you to the new address. So it's not a big deal. You don't have to do anything uh, funny. 
old links will work. Uh, it's just a, got a new address, otherppl.com. And I should also mention that there's a new Twitter handle to go along with it. It's the same exact feed, but there's a new handle. It used to be at other people pod. It's now at other PPL. That's the new Twitter handle at other PPL, but it's the same feed. Does that make sense? So if you were following the show on Twitter before, then you're still following it. Nothing has changed. It's just a different handle. This is tedious. Facebook is the same too. And uh, there's going to be a Tumblr. There is a Tumblr currently, but there's going to be a better Tumblr soon. And there's also a new logo for the show. Have you seen the new logo? I think it looks good. And uh, I believe what they call this uh, is rebranding. I've been doing a little rebranding, a little spring cleaning. I'm just trying to get everything up to date and looking good. And I'm trying to make it interesting. So as far as expansion goes, the uh, otherppl.com website now includes a magazine component in addition to the podcasts. So uh, I'm doing this magazine in conjunction with my friends, Mira Gonzalez and uh, Spencer Madsen. They have both guested on this show before. Perhaps you've heard their interviews. Uh, They're young writers. They're young people. Compared to me, which I find interesting. Uh, very funny, very talented people. And uh, we were talking here in Los Angeles not too long ago, and we struck upon this idea for a, a magazine component and uh, decided to give it a try. So uh, just a few minutes ago, I jumped on the phone with Mira and Spencer so we could talk about this very thing. And rather than me uh, summarizing what we talked about, I figured I would just let you hear. Uh, what it was that we said. So uh, here's me and uh, Sp- uh, Spencer Madsen and Mira Gonzalez just moments ago. Mira, where are you? You're in Palm Springs. There are naked people. I'm at the Ace Hotel in Palm Springs with uh, three of my friends. They were just naked, but now they left to go to the pool, and I'm about to go down and meet them. Okay, but just to be clear, you can't be naked at this hotel. This is not one of those hotels. <laughs> I mean, you can be naked in the hotel room, which is where we were all naked. Yeah. Okay. Because I, I feel like I feel like I've seen I feel like I've seen advertisements for uh, hotels in the desert where there's nudity allowed. Is that possible in I mean, America? I would imagine the desert. The desert's kind of like a desolate, horrid wasteland full of like nothing besides like astroturf. So like. I would imagine there being places where people get naked in a pool just so everyone could be entertained. Yeah, yeah. And Spencer, you uh, you are on the opposite side of the country in uh, in the Bronx. Yeah, I'm in I'm in the Bronx. I'm staying with my parents. What's going on there? How's mom and dad? <laughs> uh, my mom and my dad are both uh, the same as always. Uh, I'm in the room that I grew up in. Uh, it's really hard to feel okay here. <laughs> and I'm trying to find a place to move into. In in the Bronx, or are you going to be back in Brooklyn? Oh, in Brooklyn, yeah. Okay, okay. Well, uh, we're obviously talking because otherppl.com just launched. There is now a magazine component. I know you hate that terminology. I don't know what else to call it. Um, but this is an idea that we conceived of uh, at the King's Road Cafe in Los Angeles. We sat down. We thought it would be interesting to build a site. Uh, you know, formerly just for the podcast, but that now encompasses, uh, you know, written content. And it's going to be the three of us primarily writing stuff, right? Yeah. Three of us. And then we'll have 
one person every month um, riding alongside us. Yeah, and we're just gonna and we're gonna talk about that, and we're gonna find people that we like, and then we're gonna reach out to them. So we're not gonna accept solicitations, right? Yeah, which is important. You know, I got time for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you guys feel good about it? I mean, you like the look of the site? It launched last night. Uh, I'm recording this on March 18th, 2014. Like, we feel good about the design, the functionality. Yeah, it was designed by my buddy Eric Carter. And then, and then I should say it was uh, it was co- it was coded by John Singleton, uh, yeah, who's done uh, work for me at the Nervous Breakdown. Is sort of a genius of that stuff. So, Mira, uh, are you are you being beckoned like outside? I feel like we might be keeping you from going out and from. Um, well, they're all down at the pool now, and I'm about to go meet them. But they're probably getting drunk without me, I would imagine. But uh, I can surely catch up when I get down there. Well, see, I feel like, Spencer, I feel like Mira has a, a much better situation than either you or I. This is this is clear. <laughs> yeah, it, it's pretty clear that um, we are probably going to have more investment in this magazine because our lives are such that we don't have a lot uh, of interesting stuff going, and Mira is in the Ace Hotel in Palm Springs <laughs> with her friends getting drunk. Well, it's me- incredible if you think I have anything going in my life. This is like, it. This is it, you guys. This uh, other PPL dot com is going to take over the internet. Yeah, it's going to be. It's going to be like Rap Genius. <laughs> it's going to be like Wikipedia. <laughs> like what Rap Genius is going to be like when it takes over Wikipedia. We're going to be bigger than that. Okay, so wait. I have a question. Like editorially, I'm still a little foggy, as I'm sure you guys are too. Like, do we have an identity editorially, or, or are we just going to each do our own thing on the site and just see what happens? I think we should flail. You just want yeah, to... I'm into flail. Okay. Well, I think that's. Sum- love- I think that sums it up. We're just going to flail, and see what happens. You guys Flailing see? is really the only thing I can do. Like, if you expect <laughs> me to do something other than flail, like I can't be part of the website. <laughs> yeah, you just like you choose a direction in which to flail. <laughs> I can't even really do that. I just kind of flail all over the place. Uh, okay, folks. Well, uh, it's good talking to you guys. I'm sure we're going to be in touch uh, as we usually are. And uh, for those people listening, um, you know, go to otherppl.com and you can read uh, our flailing. Uh, Mira, go to the pool and have fun. Spencer, um, give your regards, uh, you know, give my regards to your parents. Give your regards. To my, <laughs> give your regards to my parents, too. Brad, <laughs> give my regards to your parents. Okay. I definitely, yeah. Say hello to your mother for me. It's good talking to you guys. Have fun, and uh, we'll be in touch soon. All okay, so <clears throat> there you go. That's Mira Gonzalez and Spencer Madsen. The three of us are going to be writing and posting stuff and flailing on a regular basis over at otherppl.com. So please check it out if you are so inclined. Stop by uh, at the website or follow us on Twitter at otherppl. You can also follow us on Facebook, and we will have a Tumblr up soon. And uh, we'll just see what happens. I don't know what's going to happen, but I think it's going to be interesting to find out. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. 
He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Antonia Crane. She has a new memoir out called Spent. It's a barnacle book. Uh, A barnacle book is the independent press of Rare Bird Lit, uh, based right here in Los Angeles, California. I had a great time talking with Antonia about a variety of things, very candidly, and uh, I think you're going to enjoy hearing from her. She's lived quite a life. So here she is, folks. This is Antonia Crane, and her new memoir, once again, is called Spent. It's impossible to have a critical distance when you're writing a memoir. Um, I started writing fiction for years, and I graduated with a master's in fiction. And um, towards the end of my two-year uh, at Antioch, my two-year at the MFA program there, I started writing nonfiction, and my mentor there encouraged me to write memoir. He said, you have to write memoir. Well, you have so much to write about. And so I just started to do that. And um, it ended up... It, started out as a clunky collection of essays um, that was all over the place chronologically. And then it took me four years of tearing it apart and ripping its guts out a hundred times and starting over from scratch a hundred times. Was the fiction that you were writing in the uh, earlier period, was it uh, thinly autobiographical fiction where you were working with the same material but trying to render it in story form? Yeah, I think so. I think there are a couple of things that I always came back to which was uh, cancer, a mother-daughter relationship, um, a drug scene, dark, sordid characters who were completely flamboyant and, and amazing with a lot of love uh, in that clan of speed people in a certain era. in San Francisco in the 90s always comes up. Right. Um, people who are gender ambiguous are always coming up in my work. Addiction, uh, you know. Love, death, the death of love, so, suffering. <laughs> so, but these are your things. Everyone's yeah. got them. Everybody's got them. And a lot of us, seen there's a lot of crossover, obviously. Writers often write about death. It's a big thing. It's that a happens. huge thing. You can't not write about death. I think, you know, I, I run the nervous breakdown. Like, I think like a full third of the essays we get are grief essays. Absolutely. Like, people are always processing that. And, you know, that seems natural. Um, you know, when you think about your book now being out, uh, and you think about the transition that you made from writing fiction to finally coming to terms and just like writing your truth. Uh, do you identify now as an, a writer of nonfiction? Do you, do you care about such like categorizations or I don't care. You don't, I'm just a writer. Actually, it's really fun to write fiction. Now there's a freedom in it to make stuff up. Feels really great. And it feels really freeing. Right. But, you, but can... you had to get this one out first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I will continue to write nonfiction. Um, I like lyrical nonfiction a lot, and I play with that form a lot. But there is something just about telling a story straight, you know. And I've had a, like Steve Almond, you know, helps me a lot just to tell the story straight. He's and Jim Crusoe, years ago was he told me to write like a Quaker. This is in two thousand. What does that mean? <laughs> I think he just meant um, get rid of the thrills, scrape the glitter off, and just tell the story straight. Right. 
Well, and so yeah. it's easy to do that with nonfiction because it's your story. So, okay. So let's talk about your story just so people listening can get an idea of what your book is about and what we're, you know, what we're alluding to. So, uh, what, I guess we start at the beginning. Let's start at the beginning. Northern California girl. Yep. Humboldt County. Just a nice girl from Northern California. <laughs> um, but Humboldt County, I have never been there. Strangely, I've been to San Francisco many times, but I've never like, you know, I still need to go see Sequoia National Park. I need to see the Redwoods, but... See, that's a big flaw in your character. Yes. Actually, because... I, I'm admitting it. You have failed. <laughs> because uh, Northern California is the real California is humble. It's gorgeous. It's uh, redwood forest and ocean and... It's the wild north. It's yeah. beautiful. And that was your backyard growing up. I had a redwood forest in my backyard growing up. Like uh, gigantic. Huge redwood take- trees, climbing them, jumping, climb, making forts, playing hide and seek, just running through creeks. And it was beautiful. Hippies? Yeah, the real ones yeah. from the 60s. The committed. Who live in trees and yeah. are named after butterflies. <laughs> <laughs> Those kinds. I have a, I have a, yeah, I have a soft spot. <laughs> I went to Boulder. I, I talk about this on the show sometimes, but I do have a soft spot for hippies. And uh, I, I will often argue that the hippies get a lot of shit, but the hippies were often very right, especially on like environmental issues. and Absolutely. You know, they don't get enough credit for what they're right about. They're wrong about a lot. Yeah. I will, you know, I will see that point, but the hippies have some good instincts. They have great instincts. Yeah. So you grew up in that environment. Um, my parents weren't hippies though. What were they? Were, you know, what they were, were they? Professionals. To? My dad was a lawyer and he still is. And, uh, he refuses to retire and my mom passed away, but she was a paralegal for 36 years. Okay. Up in, but up in Eureka. Up in Humboldt. Yeah. So small town lawyer. Yeah. He wasn't like commuting into the city or anything like that. Uh, he practices on a federal level now. Okay. He is very passionate about the law and goes to conferences and tries to stay up to date. He still can't use his cell phone. He doesn't know how to use his cell phone, but he's a brilliant guy. How old is he? 72. Still going. Still going. See, I respect that. Like what? I mean, my dad taught me how to get up the value of getting up at five and six in the morning. Yeah. My dad was like that too. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's retired now, but, um, he, he still gets up that at that hour. I don't think you can Mine turn too. that off once you've done that for 40 years. But Yeah, it's like going to prison. Like yeah. <laughs> once, once you service in prison, like you're up at five and you're in the shower. Or the military. You're in line. Yeah, the military is the same <laughs> way. If, you, if you've done time in the military, like I think like your body clock is just set. Yep. Um, but I think that retirement, I mean, l- listen, retirement can be great. People who can find ways to stay active, I don't begrudge them retirement. But it feels like a carrot, not to like completely digress, that people dangle. And like, I like when people just keep going. Yeah, you know, and I've tried to retire from the sex industry. <laughs> you know, 50, I think I'm like my dad in this way. I'll right. be 72. And just, like, Still on the pole. The pole. <laughs> it's a great way to stay in shape. It's a great way to stay fit. I need to start pole dancing. Um, okay, so we'll get to pole dancing. <laughs> I feel like we're working towards that. Okay. Um, so humble. Like a, a happy, like the early part of your childhood, your parents are still together. Yeah. Um, happy. Sure. Um, I mean, I was pretty happy. I had an older brother. Um, we were happy. We did fun stuff, skiing, camping, the yeah. normal stuff. Your dad must, I mean, lawyers do well. You guys could do, f- yeah. take vacations, do we stuff. We took vacations. Yeah. It was pretty awesome. Camping. And, yeah. Big brother. He was always in trouble. I got to kind of hide under the radar. He pretty was normal. I think I had a pretty normal childhood. We had a bar in my house growing up. Everybody would come over and get drunk. So that was the house the where the, where the other parents liar, liars dice. What's that? Liars dice is when you, um, you shake the dice and you say, I have six sixes and the person, they either believe you or not. And if you have the three sixes, you win. Okay. I don't know that game. Yeah. It's a drinking game. It's a drinking game. All right. I feel like truth or dare. 
Not like that. That was the, later. Spin the, the bottle. But the parents stuff. weren't playing this at the bar. The parents pa- were not playing okay. this. But I was drinking their drinks. You were? Yeah. At what age was your first sip? I was told three. I was told I was dancing on tables at three, which led to an illustrious career. <laughs> well, they say prodigies start young, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think I would have left my mother's womb. If there was a reading light and a stripper pole in my mother's womb, I would have That's all you need. So... Um, at what age, I guess, adolescence sets in? Your, your uh, parents split up when you were 10? Yeah, 10. Rough age. It's, a, it's always rough when parents split up. But I mean, yeah, I think it happens like. happens to everybody. You know, I think he was probably doing a midlife crisis deal and had to boogie. That was it. That was it. How did you react at, the, at that age? Do you, did you have like, did you lash out or was it kind of inward? I mean, I was really, um, you say, I, I say it was a happy childhood, but I, th- I was raised by housekeepers. Like my parents were both out of the house and working. So literally we left our door unlocked. And I would just, you know, come in and out and played with the neighbors. It was pretty lonely. My brother's eight and a half years older. So I was, I was basically statistically an only child and was raised by housekeepers and left alone. Um, so I was alone a lot as a kid. And had a lot of freedom. I had a lot of freedom. Too much? Sure. Yeah. Different. Small. It's a, it's a totally different world. I would wander the streets of my small town at all hours. No curfew or anything like that? I had a curfew, but I would sneak out of the house. Yeah. I had a buddy who was like raised like in this really permissive way in New York City. I'm, I'm, in I, New York City, see that's child abuse. <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, he was adopted by a woman. And she was uh, older, and um, you know, a good mom, but she was just older, and I don't know, just like gave him a key and put some money in a drawer, and he turned yeah. out great. Oh, he <laughs> That's what I'm fascinated. Interesting. It's just yeah, he's got his shit know. way more together than I do. So someone's gonna turn out. Yeah. So and you know the thing about it though is that with Manhattan, it's just like so much. That maybe somehow it counterbalances. It's like too much for him to get in trouble, or, or he was just good at staying out of trouble. Maybe it helped him get uh, acquire instincts that helped him navigate that world. Maybe, I just think about my. I mean, I was like cloistered, way cloistered by comparison. Yeah, I think that um, since we're on the topic, I mean, I think that because I had so much freedom and I was kind of forced to trust the world in a certain way, I would, um, I, I put myself in dangerous positions. Like I trust everyone and no one at the same time. Like I'm very untrusting on a deeper level, but I'm very, I'll get into cars with people or like I did as a child and later as a teenager, I would just get into cars with people. Like that was a totally normal thing. You got courage. Yeah. Well, or naivety. Yeah. I mean, I'm, but I get it like the, the, I'm sort of the same way. I mean, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like I I would hitchhike back in the day. I would do things that I look back on now and I'm just like, what in the, like, I can't believe I did that. Yeah. I have that same weird thing. Is it an ad- addiction to adrenaline? You think? Maybe, or or just stupidity. <laughs> I think sometimes I just think I just want to. I want to see what's going to happen. I'm, there's a part of me that's always like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen right now. Well, that's the thing too. I think like I, I hunger for experience, and I like when things feel a little weird. And I think I some pe- other people are like, I don't want things to feel weird. Like I actually enjoy I'm that. Also, I, you know, since we're talking about, we haven't talked about sex work yet, but when I was doing freelance dominatrix stuff and doing the sensual massage on the fly in LA, um, you know, I was always kind of charmed and curious about how well things turned out, how I made, you know, genuine, interesting connections with fascinating men who like had these houses near the biscuit factory downtown and collected art that I like and just how fascinating they were as people and how interesting their lives were. Yeah. And just what a a genuine connection that we made. And you wouldn't be able to get that unless you took the risk. Mm -hmm. You would never see. 
Yeah, I'm often moved by people. Actually, the other day, a man cried in my arms. Second man who cried during a lap dance. Really? Yeah, cried in my arms. Like sobbing. I love it now. Private yeah. or at now a club? I'm into it. It was in a club. Yeah. And yeah. he just, it, I mean, he lonely. was really drunk, and I tried to avoid him. And then some people pushed me towards him. He, it was kind of unavoidable that I would interact with him because he was there, and I was done with the bachelor party, and it was just him and I. And the security guard and the DJ were like, four, they were. My name's Candy at this club I work at. And they're just like, come on, go talk to him. And I think they know that I'm sober a long time. And he was so drunk that it made me uncomfortable to talk to him. But I just talked to him for a while, and he's a good kid, and he's just like. He was really sad, and he's good at making money. And I just said, look, you know, and he always carries around $10,000 cash. Jesus Christ. And, um, and I'll give him a lap dance. Get it. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I was talking to him, like, listen, you know, it seems like you could use a friend. Can I be your friend right now? And he started crying. And he's like, no one has said that to me in here. And I just said, you know, what's on your mind? You know, let's talk. You know, and um, it turned out, like, I just said, you know, I think you could use an AA meeting more than you could use a lap dance right now. And, I mean, I made a lot of money off the guy because he was in my work. But I gave him my number, and I just said, you call me, I'm taking you to a meeting. Wow. And Because um, he was shit-faced. And you've I seen him there before? Of course, yeah. Yeah, I'd seen him before, and I avoided him. Because he was one of those drunk guys that it was just too much. Like, he's staggering, and it just gets sad. And um, How old? In his 20s? Uh, I think late 30s. Late 30s. Single dad makes a lot of money and he it just made me so sad because he kept saying you know the only thing i know how to do is make money that's the only thing i don't know how to do i know me too <laughs> teach me my god i guess you can't have it all either it's way like i have you know you have to have a heart when you're um in any business i i fully believe that it, all work is honorable and that you never know where you can be of love and service yeah and for some reason i'm still doing this even though i don't want to and i hated it and like i don't want to be doing it anymore you know those that was valuable to me. And maybe it's a drop in the bucket. Maybe he'll get sober. Maybe he won't. But. Well, but you never... Yeah. It, it wasn't a negative in his life. No. And it's not a normal thing that I do. Like, I'm not trying to, like, convert every person that comes in there to AA. But I had seen that guy in there a few times before. And I know, he carries a wad, like, the size of basketball, money. And it's just like... Just hundreds? Oh, just hundies? Yeah. That's hundies. I guess that's what you're going to... It's not going to be singles. He's yeah. on a rampage. Wow. You know? That's a lot of cash. I don't even know where you get that. You used to go to the bank and say, I want $10,000 cash. I'm going to send it, spend it on the street. Like, you can either throw it in the street, spend it at the casino, or give it to women in bras. It's like, yeah, it's a good investment. So you must have gotten paid well. I got paid well that night. <laughs> good for you. <laughs> I do well. So, yes. Okay. So, uh, Humboldt County, you know, this kind or of like. I would have left like 15 years ago. Well, I mean, it's. <laughs> it stayed gone. Yeah. And you paid in cash. I mean, um, you you know you have this childhood where you're kind of living uh, solo. You know yeah. you have a lot of freedom. Are you reading a lot as a ranger. kid? I loved reading. I loved reading. My mom would take me to the library, and I would take all the books I could carry. Okay, so I mean, because I'm oh, I'm imagining if you're an inward kid and your parents are sort of out at work. And I was a gregarious kid, but I have this weird loner thing too. Yeah. I sort of have that too because I, I have both sides. I'm not like yeah. a full introvert, but exactly. I uh, I need it. Like I, if I'm like I imagine like after you're at uh, work and you come home from like being with clients and dancing and all this stuff, do you just come home and like have to be alone? Alone, and I can be alone for a very long time and absolutely love it. Yeah, yeah, I like you that way. Well, yeah, very no- gregarious and very on, but 
love, just perf- really would want to be alone. Like, can't wait to kind of be alone. Yeah, but you need both because if I'm alone for too long, then it's like, okay, I need yeah. to go talk then, to somebody. Then you're treating your isolation, you're treating your loneliness with isolation. Yeah. That so, gets tricky too. Okay. So, uh, you, when did you leave home? 17. Well, that's weird. It's a part that's not in my book is when I, I left home at um, 14 to be an exchange student. I lived in Bombay, India. For how long? Six different families for a year. No shit. And I'm writing my next memoir about that experience. Because uh, was this something that you initiated or were your parents like, let's get, yeah. let's send her abroad? I think my mom had something invested in sending me abroad. That um, was a nasty divorce. They fought over me. I was a chess player. I was a... They fought. It was a nasty custody battle. Um, were you aware of it? Yes. You were. Um, my mom was pissed off. And um, I think that it was also... There was a couple of things going on. I needed to get out of the house. I feel like she... Her husband, my stepfather, was violent at that time. He was a violent young man. What, the guy she remarried? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he is went through anger management and is a wonderful, wonderful man and in my life today. Oh, real? Okay. Yeah. But, um... And... It was at a boiling point. And I also think that sending me abroad would take me away from my father. And it would piss him off. And it did. Um, and I've never said that out loud, really. So it's strange that I'm saying it now. But I think that's there was some... Something was afoot in Denmark about me going to India. Um, but I did write an essay with her help. And I was not I was enabled to... I was awarded um, the exchange student... International exchange. I was the youngest international exchange student to go to India that year from California. Wow. I was 15. And, that, and that's a, that's a, I mean, like, I, I can understand being an exchange student in, like, France. Yeah, I was but the culturally, only one from California to go to India. India is a huge um, change. There were lepers. There, it, it was a mob scene. It was very strange and a mob scene, and I'm so surprised they didn't send me home because I went to college for one day. That's it. And then I got on trains and wandered with um, into slums, and I I hung out with the with poor children and lepers and was never sent home. You had no supervision. Zero. Holy shit! I got into cars with people and ended up on the sets of Bollywood movies, and I would give my rupees to beggars, and then I just like hired a camel cart and I was just like, take me to Agra, take me to the Taj Mahal, by myself. Sixteen years old. 15 going on 16 years old. Oh I was just like, take me to the Taj Mahal. For a year. Mm-hmm. Where did you live? Uh, host families. They just kept shuffling me around. Okay. But you had like somewhere, like someone was yeah. taking some but kind I of carry. leaving. I would just be like, take me, take me to Agra. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That sounds, I mean, cause I have a buddy who went to India last uh, summer and huh. you know, in his thirties and was overwhelmed. Yeah. And you know, it was a pretty good traveler, but he was like, holy shit. Like, especially in the summer, it was really hot and. You know. Yeah, it's a wild place. That that kind of poverty keeps you up at night. Yeah, when you're an American from a small town. Well, it's different. It's a different kind of poverty. But that's not in the book. Yeah, and it was for a while. It's interesting because it's about what's left out and what do you keep in the book and what's your life. Like huge chunks of my life are not in the book, and the India thing is just you know. Frankly, it's its own it's story. Book. Yeah. So I, I really left home when I was 17. Uh, my mother insisted that I go back to high school after I I didn't want to go back to high school. I had had an experience that set me apart. I it was culture shock and um, reverse culture shock you mean or mm-hmm. yeah i just like had nothing to say to my family and um or any white people it was just weird and um so i was a weirdo 
But I went to school and I just like shaved my head and wore a tuxedo to my prom. And but I still like I still had my I still loved the people that I loved, but it, I was just in a different place. Mm-hmm. I was still like um, not nominated uh, prom. I guess I was nominated prom queen or whatever, but I didn't win or whatever. I was still like the the people, the cheerleaders, and the people that I loved. I still loved them. I just couldn't talk to them. Yeah. Um, so then I left home at seventeen and I lived with my best friend. And worked a few jobs and went to college. In, in Eureka? Mm-hmm. Okay. So still in, still in your hometown? Yep. Okay. And then um, how did you get into sex work? Like what okay. was the transition? I, um, you know, everyone asked that question and I wish it was as easy as, well, I just marched into the strip clubs and thought it was a good idea. Um, but I never think it's that easy. And it's also never just about the money. It's about so many things. And that's why I hope that other people talk about their stories too. Um, it was the perfect storm, which I hate that phrase, but it was just like the perfect combination of events. Um, I was in a college that I had no idea how I was going to pay for. I was in Mills College studying feminist theory, you know, the civil rights movement, women's rights, French feminist thought, you know, post-structural feminist theory, obsessed with Kathy Acker. You were, put, you were putting yourself through school? Uh-huh. Your dad didn't pay for your school? Very little. Uh, my parents didn't really financially support my higher education. They were emotionally supportive. But um, I got grants and loans and did it that way. And I was um, struggling to survive in San Francisco, exorbitant rent. And I had a fledgling drug habit going. How did, and, uh, and how did that start? I mean, I know you were drinking and dancing at three. That actually started in Humboldt. I got involved with a married man. That's in the book. I got involved with a married man who introduced me to Speed. And then I found Better Speed in San Francisco, right. which the queers had. And so I just dove into the queer scene. I'm not just for the drugs, for political reasons and personal reasons and feminist theory reasons. Yeah. Well, and then they are like sexually, um, are you bisexual? I'm bisexual. And did you, when did that happen for you? Like, when did you realize that that was the case? In San Francisco. It Good was place. a great place to be bisexual. <laughs> I was going to say, if you're into speed and you're bisexual, San Francisco is a good place to yeah. be. Yeah. It's a great place to be and to fight for queer rights and to fight for women's rights. It's just a beautiful place to be. It's all happening. Well, in 90s San Francisco, especially late 90s San Francisco, was just like a surreal boom time. Oh, you- it was such a great time to be in San Francisco. Yeah. And I was obsessed with Kathy Acker, and I followed Kathy Acker and my friend David Spalding, um, who's also a writer who, uh, and a good friend. And I followed them to the Bay Area where it was all happening. And the, there was also a performance art movement happening. Barbara Kruger, Jenny Holzer... Diamanda Galas, Karen Finley, uh, Danielle Willis is a performance artist, uh, stripper in the nineties. And I was obsessed with her. She taught me how to strip. You have to learn. There was this whole, this actually, movement. it actually fascinates me because I wonder how, cause stripping is an art. People oh, are absolutely. good at it. I know you have to, you do it, it and you learn. It's art. We but went somebody, to VIPs in the nineties. Somebody taught you. They taught me. These girls, these performers, these beautiful, fascinating women in the nineties. Like what are the, what are the basics of stripping? (laughs) Um, it's, well, I actually, I, it's in the book, absolutely verbatim. Like a woman um, named Madeline was just, I was crying because I was like, I was very confused and I was on speed and I was in love with a woman and I was uncomfortable with men touching me. And I was just like crying. And she just said, look, just ask them if they want to play with a kitty purr in their ear and you know, don't make a fuss, just get on the bus. And she just literally took my hand and led me into the room and just pushed me into laps. And then I started talking to people. And I, this is funny because, you know, I went into strip clubs with the intent of I'm going to take down the patriarchy one lap dance at a time. 
because I was learning all of this stuff about being sexually in my body and being in my sexual body and being in a place of power. And, you know, I know that this isn't everyone's story. And I know that this is a privileged sex worker story, that I wasn't, you know, sold into prostitution, that I was not um, forced against my will. But I literally, Angela Davis came to speak at my school one day, and I walked into the strip clubs the next day. And I was just like, I am going to do this, and I am going to, like, be a sexually empowered woman and perform the feminine. I was bald. I wore wigs. I'm going to perform the feminine, and I'm going to make some money. And I, I walked in like a man-hater, and I walked out like a lover of people. Like, I just met too many fascinating, generous, amazing, professional men who supported me for years. Like they were regular customers? Customers who brought me books. One wanted to sell me his motorcycle. One bought me a car, which I didn't take. You didn't take it? Mm-mm. Why? You felt Emotionally like it was- complicated. Okay. Uh, they sent me flowers. They uh, paid my rent in San Francisco for over 10 years. They bought me sessions at sensory deprivation tank places. They just thought I was the most fascinating, interesting person they'd ever met. I've had men fly me all over the country and want nothing from me. Just your company? Yep. Okay, because this is the thing about it, and you see this sometimes in movies, and you see it if you go to strip clubs. You know, the guy, guys are lonely. We're a culture dying of loneliness. Bro. Yeah. So we people, are dying of loneliness. Any kind of connection. And, and it's it, so honest to say, you know, you're a fascinating woman. I'm paying you for your time. Right. It's just honest. And it's like a guarantee. And it's like, but what's interesting is that, um, you know, you're either fully naked or almost naked mm-hmm. and you're sitting in somebody's lap. And really what they want to do is just talk to you. They want to talk to me. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, I mean, because uh, you would think like if somebody's flying you all the way across the country, they're going to have certain expectations. And sometimes yeah. I'm, I'm, sometimes I'm imagining you have clients that are that way. Do you ever have guys that are you're like, okay, you're gross, I can't do this, or you know, I've never, um, yeah, I'll, I'll, a lot of times I've had clients who are gross, and I didn't really want to do it and did it anyway, and those times are sad, and it's where I was kind of sad and acting out, and I couldn't figure out how to get out of it, um, and later I regretted it and ended up, you know, on my couch under a blanket for a couple of days, um, but more often than not, I had a valuable experience with an interesting person. That I still think about in a stripping context or in like an actual sex. Stripping and well, it's two different jobs. Yeah, stripping is a different job. Right. Um, and uh, stripping, you're paying an entertainer to sit with you and dance with you. Sometimes there's extras involved. At least in San Francisco uh-huh. now, not in New Orleans and not in um, Palm Springs, but in San Francisco at that time. In the '90s, we were doing extras in the clubs, and uh, usually it's a fascinating experience with an interesting person. Uh, sometimes it's a gross experience with a drunk, awful person. <laughs> <laughs> or like, mostly, you know, the beginning of the book where the... Mostly the, it's a human connection with a lonely person. Yeah. Even if they're like a little too drunk or... Yeah. I mean, usually they're drunk at the strip club, right? A lot of times, but not always. Not yeah. always. Actually, in the nude clubs in San Francisco, they don't serve alcohol. So they would have to come in drunk already or they were sober. See, that seems crazy to me that you wouldn't serve. I don't think they serve uh, booze in L.A. strip clubs, do they? If they do, then there's no topless. Okay. There's no nudity. Okay. You have to go to Vegas or New Orleans. You would think in L.A., of all places, there's all... L.A. is surprisingly conservative. Yeah. California is a very religious state. It's surprisingly conservative. Outside of the city. The United States is a very religious country. Yeah. And certain... um, And the, the definition of prostitution is the same in many states, but it's not enforced. In L.A., they enforce the shit out of it. That's interesting. I feel like California should be more permissive. It's not. Yeah. Um, But San Francisco 
is a wild place. San Francisco is the most sexually liberated city in the country. Yes, it's but then that's good and bad for sex workers because like and it's it feels like it's a mixed the, bag. like the sex and being um, open about sex and you know embracing all the different. Uh, orientations and everything feels like a very intrinsic part of San Franciscan's identity. It does. In ways that like, it certainly isn't in LA though. There's some of that. Well, LA is a different animal. It's conservative outwardly. It's, it's a, it's a, in very, in many ways, a very fake town. Well, you don't uh, say, <laughs> <laughs> which is stating the obvious, but even in the sex where the sex industry is concerned, there's a ton of porn and a ton of prostitution available on certain websites. So you can get something for very little here. Um, but on another level, it's very conservative, and Vice spends all their time trying to bust sex workers. And you mean Vice? Porn, Vice meaning the cops? Cops, not the magazine. Not the magazine. <laughs> the cops. Okay. Um, like if it's for entertainment and if it's porn, it's permiss- It's it's fine. But if it's a woman on her own giving a hand job in a in a hotel, they crack down on that. Um, and in clubs, there where there's alcohol served, there's no nudity and no contact just so strange so strange like to just be drinking like an O'Doul's at a strip club just seems wrong right you know yeah like let the people have a beer but then i guess it can get out of hand no not in your experience not in my experience yeah and you have to be able I mean, they have to have security and do you, do you get better at handling i mean do you just stay away from guys who look like they're going to be a trouble or do you know how to deal with people you after become a, a handler yeah you become a professional handler which a lot of jobs you're a handler when you're a bartender you're a handler when you're any kind of security you're a right. handler. when you're an assistant you're a handler so okay so if somebody's giving you trouble is there a signal in a club how does it work in a strip club do you is there a word oh, this is funny um well you know interestingly it's every man for himself out there um so i have very always felt very alone and the one time that i didn't I did have an instance in San Francisco where a man wouldn't let me out of the room. And I screamed, and five black strippers came to my rescue. When what happened? Was they it... just got him out of the room. They just oh. like they just marched him out. Okay. And like, I was going to say, was punch is thrown? <laughs> they just grabbed him and marched him out, and we're like, are you okay? I was like, yeah, thank you. But so the, the, dancers, security, the security the dude didn't come in. It was, it was the dancers. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. But the security guards, I'm not saying they're all bad. Um, they're just probably busy or whatever, or I don't know, but, um, it would be hard to police at all. I mean, those places, those places are busy, especially if it's a crowded club and it's loud and, you know, you'd have to almost have like cameras and somebody really watching. Yeah. To my surprise though, security guards have been more interested in policing me than the clients, which I think is wrong. Like making sure that you don't cross any kind of line. Yeah. Maybe they are. You can't let them touch you like that. Are you permissive? I mean, when when it comes to that sort of stuff? I guess. I mean, do because the thing is is that like I would imagine you get paid better. I mean, that's part of the that's part of the dance that you do when you're in that line of work is that uh, these guys are there, they get a little handsy, you know, they're liable to tip more. You know? It's hard to manage. It's a lot there's a lot of things going on on a lot of levels. Yeah. Well, yeah, and in, in the heat of the moment and people are drunk and it's a lot, I mean, I mean, my basic policy is they don't, you don't have to let them touch you. So why do it? But it's hard to, to manage it sometimes. And so, um, do you have like a red line? I mean, are you pretty, I mean, after a while, does it get sort of clinical for you? I mean, it's like, it's theatrics, but you can't be like, I mean, like how much of you is there when you're doing that? 
you know? And like, yeah. how, how do you, like, do you just turn <laughs> off? Questions. Do you think, cause like you talked about, um, the AA, you know, the guy with the AA, mm-hmm. um, you know, where you're almost taking on a therapeutic role and there is some of that almost there people need a release. That. They need contact or lonely, like mm-hmm. we were talking about. So, you know, how do you conceptualize the work, you know, and, and it's changed over the years. I think I did when I first got into the, into dancing, I, when I was sober, it's a difference talking about it. When I was not sober, I was reckless and bad at making money. I started, when I got sober, I started making money, taking my clothes off and doing it really well because I was really present, but I did, you know, newly sober. I think I would disassociate at times because it, it also just gets boring after a while. So you disassociate after a while. Same songs. Yeah. It's just the same shit over and over. Um, but, and that's burnout. Also, I did get really burned out. Um, and I, you know, at a certain point I wanted to give on a different level. And that's when I started doing social work, working for triple diagnosed youth in San Francisco. I just wanted to give in a different way. And, um, but as far as being present now, I don't do it. This isn't my everyday job. I'm a writer and a teacher and I wait tables. I do a lot of stuff. Um, and I have found that, yeah, sex work has never really flattered my personal relationships. It's always been a challenge, not only for me, but for my partner. Well, let's talk about that because in the early days in San Francisco, you were in a relationship with uh, a Women. woman yeah. named Bianca. Yeah. That was a drug. Uh, that was, that was when you were still doing drugs. Yes. You were doing meth. True. That was a meth relationship. Is that a fair characterization? No? I don't know if that's fair. I was really in love with her. Yeah. That was the first woman that I really fell in love with. How did you guys meet? Through our drug dealer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Greatest matchmakers on the planet. Yeah, you know. All right. And so... It was pre-match.com. What did <laughs> <you do? laughs> um, so you guys were together. You were doing a lot of meth. Meth is a... It took over. I think meth took over our relationship. It's a, I mean, uh, it, it is probably, I guess, heroin too scares me. Meth scares me. It should. It's such, I mean, you see those before and after pictures. I have a friend in college who got really into it, Mm -hmm. lost teeth, lost hair. I mean, this is over a a period of a lot of years, but I just remember, um, I remember him coming back from new Orleans and he had been with a girl who got him into it. Right. And they, he was like, I was up for five days. It was so crazy. And then he came home and slept for like 40 hours consecutively. And I just remember being like, cause I mean, this is back when I was early twenties, I would, you know, I was much crazier then than I am now and would have been more inclined to be open. But even then I was like, dude, that's fucked up. Yeah. It was you a know. scary drug. It totally took over. What's like the longest? Instantly. Well, yeah. I mean, and it's super addictive. Yeah. You're like taking things apart, cleaning, painting, painting, painting upholstering chairs, having, but also having like really insane sex. Like I read that not about for it. me. No, not really. I didn't really want anybody touching me when I was on meth. That was the weird thing. Really? Guys. Yeah. You guys, it stimulates something for men. I'm not sure if it's the same for women. It wasn't really for me. Okay. It wasn't a super sexy drug. At all. And how long were you uh, in, in, into that? Off and on for a few years, a handful of years. I went down really fast. Like It, it immediately took over my life. Like Instantly, I just didn't care about anything else. That was it. It's so crazy. And how did you kick? Oh, um, I tried to kick a couple of times and would always go back. And then the one time I was, uh, got in an argument with Bianca and took a knife to my wrists and cut my wrists open, um, with a serrate, uh, serrated knife that said miracle worker on it. I still have it somewhere. Okay. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I bled all over the kitchen tile 
And she said, don't look at it, you'll freak out, you'll pass out. And she tied a bandana around my wrist, and her car didn't have any gas, so we had to call an ambulance, and I got stitched up and was held under supervision for 72 hours at Davies Medical Center. And I never went back. That was it? That was it. No rehab, no inpatient? Didn't go back to her, didn't go back to... I, I couch surfed for at least three months. So, okay, that was the end of the I relationship. the clothes on my back, yeah. And you were just like, this is too fucking crazy. Yeah. Did it, I mean, scared you? It was you. life or death. I mean, right. I tried to die, couldn't die, I need to live. It was life or death. It was that simple. And I think those are the people that have a chance to get sober, maybe, is the ones where it's life or death. And maybe having that confrontation, I mean, it's as awful as it is to have, you know, to have cut your wrist and like, Blood that's, out. that's, yeah. yeah, that's crossing a line. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people might have those kinds of thoughts or whatever. And especially people who are heavy into drugs or, you know, who are self-medicating like that, but then to actually take that action yeah. did you I mean it was a pivot point psychologically for you? Yeah. I think it was a, it was a bad day. <laughs> Fair <laughs> characterization. So, um, relationships. Mm-hmm. This is something I'm always fascinated with when it comes to people who do sex work is how do you, uh, balance like real relationships with the relationships that you have with clients? Like it, it's gotta be tricky. It is tricky. And I, I think I, it's changed over the years for you or just generally for me. Yeah. Um, I gave up sex work and entered a long-term relationship and I kind of feel like it was my first real relationship because I was not dancing or doing anything. When was this? 2010, 2011. Okay. So, but Bianca was the nineties. Yeah. So there was a long period where you were doing sex work and you were not in in a relationship and in relation. I was in relationships, but, and I don't know if this is true. This is something I'm still sorting out. Yeah. Like I think that I was in, I was in relationships, but there's something about my heart being available for someone in a way that's very risky. It's very risky for me to not have that That validation from men where I can walk in and the whole room is attracted to me and the whole room and a lot of people in it will pay me to Hands for them. So yeah, are normal relationships with guys kind of a letdown? <laughs> <laughs> so where's the money? Where's the cat? You know, like, but I, honestly, because no, there's like a I'm theatricality not... to the work that you do, and like there's yeah. that. It's hot, confusing. It's confusing. It's confusing because like, okay, what I would do is, I I'm I was not looking for a sugar daddy. I've turned away a lot of men who wanted to support my lifestyle, and I know that's not love. And so I would tend towards men who didn't have any money, and I would trust them more, and I would invest my time and heart into them because I, I would, and have a relationship with men who kind of were poor. But I think I was also in a, in a controlling place cause I would try to buy them and, you know, let's go to Amsterdam for a week and hire hookers every night. Like I would have the money and I would use that to control their time and, um, and use, and sexual power. I was very, I didn't know this, but I was using my sexual power to, to steer the relationship. Right. I'm not saying I didn't love them, um, but I was suspicious of men with money, and so I wouldn't date them. And then what about... Uh... And then later, when I started dating men who were more accomplished, I was very uncomfortable and, and uneasy. Um, and then I finally... I was at a time in my age where I was just like, I want a family, and this man... You know, he was... I thought he was my guy. You know, I guess I was wrong, but I thought he was everything I was looking for. And this is the 2010. Yeah. And where did you meet? AA. 
Okay. And um, but he was had a lot a lot less time than I did, and so I, I should have not maybe entered into that relationship. And but was part of the deal like I'm going to stop doing the sex work? Was that like a mutually yeah, it was agreed an adult upon? conversation? And I said, I, you know, he said, I want to build a life with you, but I don't think I can handle this. And I'm just like, great, I'm ready to leave it. Let's set a date. And I set a date. I stuck to it. I left it for two years and dove in. And it was, um, and so it was totally devastating when that ended because I was like, oh my God, this is like my first real breakup. Yeah. Like I, I gave it everything and I didn't dance. Um, and at the end I did start dancing again and he started drinking again. Really? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's another, that's a complicated issue. But, um, yeah, I was devastated when it ended because I was like, oh my God, for the first time, I think ever, I completely gave it everything. And I don't know if I was capable of doing that when I was, you know, full-time dancing and doing sex work. Well, there's so much, okay, there's so much. I was not emotionally available. Well, that's what I was going to say. There's so much that goes in. And I mean, I guess you could say this about so many jobs. If you're like a brain surgeon or you're like a shrink and you really have a lot of jobs take a lot of emotional commitment and you have to find ways to reserve some of your emotional reservoir or whatever for yeah. the people in your life who you're intimate with. But with sex work, um, it seems like there's a lot of energy expended. There is, but I don't know if this is fair. And again, I'm, I'm just sorting this out with you right now. Yeah, sure. But how is this different than being a doctor? That's what I was just saying. And a lawyer. Yeah. Like I know lawyers, like they pour everything into their jobs and they've got very little emotional reserve, emotional spare change yeah. for a relationship or professional actors who give everything, their soul, their emotions to the job. And they're, they're away out of a country for six months. You know, how, how is that not taxing on a real emotional involvement. So I think that there's this, you know, we carry around this stigma of sex work and sex workers like, Oh, well you can't have a real relationship. Right. If you do sex work. Ah, have you I, ever seen it? Have, it? have you ever seen it work? Do you know people in the sex industry where like she works in the sex industry? He is a accountant or whatever. Most strippers have boyfriends and are, have cute, sweet boyfriends. And it works. Or husbands. I don't know how well it works. I yeah. don't really... I'm the last person to gauge, you know, oh, they're in a healthy relationship. Right. Um, but uh, they, a lot of them have significant others and kids. A lot of strippers have kids. A lot of porn stars have husbands. I mean, Oriana Small is a great example. Uh, Ashley Blue, who wrote Girlvert. Right. She is uh, married to Dave Naz. And they, I think they, have a mo- they model a pretty healthy, great relationship that's... There's well, no, no rules. I mean, like it can be done. I mean, are you asking me would I like to have a you know a healthy relationship where we have adult conversations about this stuff and sort it out? Absolutely. Would I like to find a dude and say, look, you know, these guys don't mean anything to me, but I do kind of forge these funny little friendships. Yeah. I don't see them outside. Here's what I do do. Here's what I don't do. Are you comfortable with this? You know, can we? I would love to find somebody who's an adult who can have an adult conversation. So, so, okay. So after the relationship with this guy, uh, his name in the book is Adam. Um, actually that's a different guy, but yeah, I did have a relationship with a sober guy named Adam. Oh, okay. So this is complicated. So 2010 is different. Um, 2010, I had a six month relationship with Adam. Okay. And that broke my heart wide open. Yeah. And is that the one where, uh, that's not the one I lived with for two years. Where you started dancing and he started drinking. Different. Different guy. Different guy. Yeah. Okay. So in that instance... The two-year guy who started drinking is not in the book. That happened after I wrote the book. Oh, okay. The guy in the book, the love relationship, was Adam. Okay. Also an AA guy. It's a good place to meet. <laughs> you have something <laughs> yeah. in common, hey, right? Hey, Cupid. No, but you know, I, 
I've been to an AA meeting. I was doing research um, for a book. I thought it was going to factor in. I didn't know anything about it. And then I'd, I'd read about Spying it. Spying on us? Exploiting kind of, us? It was an open meeting. For your material? <laughs> yeah. No, but I'd also read about it. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut always wrote really affectionately about AA as being like, you know, like the only really effective community or one of the only really truly effective communities uh, left, you know, in American life where you, people are really honest and they get up there and like, it was a really emotional experience for me. Like, you know, just sitting there witnessing, I was like, holy shit, like this yeah. is real shit, you know, like real people with real yeah, problems. I feel like I just sounded like a surfer or something. When I said <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, just laugh really loud. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. I just, I was moved by it and I thought it was, uh, I could see why people go and I can see why it works. You know, you don't yeah. have that kind of honesty in Amer in human life in very many places. And that kind of like, yeah, you know, where people communicate. I think you're dead on about that. And I think that uh, there's nowhere, you know, where else can you go and say, look, you know, there's just a part of myself that hates myself and wants to burn my life down when it's going really great. Like, I think addicts in really understand that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. Well, and look, where can you, I mean, I th I'm thinking of like, you know, websites where people write essays, you know, and... Mm -hmm. That's kind of maybe the, the internet equivalent of like a, a meeting somehow where people share dark parts of themselves honestly and openly. Mm -hmm. And there's such a need for that. And then, but in, in, in real life, in person, maybe you have, you know, close friends or intimates that you can do that with. Mm -hmm. Um, but certainly strangers, you're just not getting that at like the local Episcopalian church. At least I don't think you are. No. You can get it in a strip club. <laughs> if you find the right stripper. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, you're right. And there is that community. Uh, and I think that, you know, we're at a time where we need so much empathy. There's so much suffering in the world. And wherever you can find empathy, I think you, it's a, it's been such a godsend. Yeah. It's been amazing to have that community of support. Yeah. So um, your mother Mm -hmm. factors into the, into the book as well. You guys had a close relationship. We were very close and she, um, got sick with cancer. Mm -hmm. So when was she diagnosed? She was diagnosed when I, in 2004, when I was working at the law firm. Okay. And bile duct, bile duct cancer. I don't even know. It's really rare. It's like being struck by lightning. It's yeah. a really rare one. No idea what causes it. Just no clue. None. It's your plumbing. It's it's similar to pancreatic in that it screws with your plumbing, and you basically have to they have to take out your intestines, and it's this whole like horrendous Whipple surgery where they take out your intestines and scrape out the cancer and put it back in, and no one survives it. Like no one survives Whipple surgery over a year and a half, and I didn't know that at the time. Maybe that wasn't. Um, I'm sure I researched it online at the time, but they didn't know that then. It was a surgery that not a lot of people opted for. That's intense. She was cancer-free for a, a little over a year and after the, five abdominal surgeries, chemo, radiation, Whipple. Oh. It was a nightmare. Yeah. And so um, what was your relationship with your with your mom and with your parents with regard to the work that you do? Like, What was like uh, their level of awareness? How do they feel about it? I wish I would have asked her. Um, I think she was probably bummed that I wasn't some CEO on some level, but she never verbalized that to me directly. Were you open? You're open with her about it? Pretty open. In the 90s, I mean, she knew I was an adult entertainer. Even my father recently actually um, said that I was an adult entertainer. And um, I've never... Um, my mother, I brought her to the Lusty Lady. 
in the 90s, actually, with her friend. And she just thought it was silly and that it looked fun. But I didn't tell her about, you know, Enema Man and Speculum Man and the clowns on Halloween, <laughs> where it was just like 2 a.m. and just like six clown faces jerking off. Just, you know, you don't tell your mom about things yeah, like that. Because yeah, how do you <laughs> I mean, I went to Speculum Man's wedding. Speculum Man was a client, and he would, like, obtain disciples. We were his, like, disciples. He would come, and he followed us from club to club, and he was Speculum Man. He would bring a clean Speculum. It was... He became a friend. He's this German guy. And um, he would, like, make us mix CDs. And I, ended, I went to his wedding. Like... <laughs> Of course, you he was German. Tell your mom certain things. Yeah, of course. You know the sweaty Santa hats, the Walgreens sweaty Santa hat guys around Christmas, where it's just like one Santa after another. They come in. They come in. They jerk off. They leave. <laughs> or you jerk them off, like depending on the club. There's just certain things you don't need to tell mom, but um, you know it's funny the the connection between mother and daughter. It's it's a very strong bond. I feel like not only did she um, want me. Uh, she wanted a daughter, and um, but she liked me, and so she treated me more like a sister. And I don't know how healthy that is, um, but we were very close and very bonded. Yeah. And it was really hard when she got cancer and got sick. She was a very powerful woman, strong, political, smart. Yeah, and that just it just ravages, you know. It the, just ravaged her. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> what did that do? Did that change anything for you? Um, in terms of the work that you do, did it change your perspective on it to have witnessed your mother's passing? Did it change you creatively? You know, oh, yeah, all I mean, of that, all of it. Such great questions. Um, so nuanced, uh, it absolutely changed the work. Um, I, I just did a moth. Um, I did the moth. I won the moth based on a story. Congratulations. Going home. And, um, in that I talked about when my mother, um, Died. I was in grad school, didn't know how I was going to pay for it. Her um, estate paid for the first year of grad school. She really wanted me to get my MFA. I kept not go. I, I got into grad school. She got cancer. I declined enrollment. She was clean, cancer-free. I s- applied to grad school again, got in, and she was dead a month later. Ugh. And so I, I just couldn't deal with being a personal assistant to rich women anymore, even though they were good to me and I liked them. What do you mean a personal assistant? To? I was a personal assistant also okay. to some various women, uh, wives of powerful men in Hollywood, in Hollywood. And I would, would get, you care to name any names? No. <laughs> and I would get dog vitamins and, uh-huh. you know, homeopathic remedies and return all of their power cords and Apple products way past the expiration dates and run around town. And I just couldn't deal with that. I was just like, pick up your own dry cleaning. Like I can't deal. They were good to me. Don't get me wrong, but I just couldn't deal. I just wanted to go sit in the dark with strangers and hear their sad stories, so I could forget about my own and make some money at the same time. Right. So I went back to dancing at like thirty-seven years old, and, um, and that's at the upper end, age range-wise. Yeah. Like, what's the? That's max? like one hundred and fifty. I was going to say. I mean, you know, but I, like, what's the what's the max? I mean, because like you know, people. I feel like the. I really do feel like the. It's a young, um, damaged girls game, really. It, it is, but I feel like, um, I mean, I don't want to say 40 is the new 30, but I feel, I really do feel like yeah, the, the range feels like it's elastic. And yeah, it's I feel, crazy. I feel like I've, I'm just hitting my stride in so many ways now. Yeah. I hope yeah. to hit mine sometime soon. <laughs> <laughs> really bloomers. Yeah. 
So with the work, it became a place, I, I, I say that um, sex work saved me in a way. It was a dark lap to fall into. It was a soft place to land. Um, and I also acted out and I put myself in reckless situations. There's a part of like... After your mother's death. I was raging and I just didn't care anymore and I just needed to get through grad school. And so the strip club I was working at, Pleasure, shut down while I was working there. And so I ended up um, doing, that's when I did the freelance hand job thing, gig. I made a splash on the internet. Okay, so freelance hand jobs. <laughs> <laughs> rubber glove? No rubber glove. No, no rubber glove. Just, you don't care. You're not like. Except for the guy who was the nurse. He liked the nurse thing. He, okay. And he would be his naughty nurse and the thermometer up the ass and all that stuff. The whole thing. Sometimes I wore a glove. He brought rubber bands and he liked rubber bands on his dick. And this is too much information. No, I, I feel like this is, a, there's a curiosity to it, you know, like how people are. And really like, nice guy. Marathon runner. Yeah. But, uh, no gloves. Um, you know, condoms when there was more than just the hand job, which was rare. I don't really enjoy anything more than that. I don't do the hand job thing anymore. I don't enjoy that anymore. Um, I'm ready to be a teacher and a professor, and I really love teaching, and I just want to, I really want to get out of that right. whole dealio. But, um, and it doesn't mean that it's not great for others. And if I could probably, if I could comfortably fuck for money, I probably would have been doing it, but I just can't. Um, what is it? I mean, like, because, you know, the, the question of lines, you know, like I can give a hand job, yeah, but that's I can, the line. That's the line. Yeah. That's it. I think for me, that's the line where my personal life, where professional life ends and my, my personal life begins. That makes sense. It's like oral and penetration. It's right. Like, I'm sorry. That's, I can't do that for money. Especially if you want to have like a relationship with somebody. Well, see, that's where we get into funny territory because there are porn stars that have healthy relationships. And there are people that do that stuff that have boyfriends and, and by the way, what's a healthy, I mean, I don't what is a healthy relationship? Exactly. I mean, I mean, I'm, what's prostitution? I mean, these, these are huge questions. I mean, a woman who's not really in love with a guy and I've had these opportunities of men that wanted to shack up with me who had a ton of money. I just didn't love them and I, I won't do that. But I know women who have money, married, moneyed men. And are not happy and and have extramarital affairs and is that prostitution? You know, it's a good question. Depends, I guess, how the relationship is executed. You know, the extramarital relationship. But yeah, I don't know uh, you anymore. know, I think like you know, it's just such a broad category. Are you friends in a- of mine that have open relationships? I think are the healthiest people that I know. Really, they are open about everything. They are in couples counseling. They work hard to communicate and they understand that there's many kinds of love. Okay. So how does that work? Cause like, I always feel I don't like, no, I'm not in one, but I, I just have friends. Yeah. Okay. Right? But how does it work for them? Because I'm curious about this. I don't think I can. Ethical got... slut is the book to buy. <laughs> it's called ethical slut Buy the book and, and just Who wrote communicate. It? I can't remember right now. Or is it like an anthology of like, no, the... it's ethical slut. It's actually the book to buy. It's directions on how to have a healthy communicative open relationship with your partner. Okay. Cause I have this, like, I guess I just have this, like, uh, like I couldn't do it. My wife and I, like we're, I think we're happy being monogamous, but it's mm-hmm. like, um, I, I, I cannot imagine that that would work. I'd right. go, I'd be crazy. I'd be right. like, what's going on? Okay, like, if you're do you wife- tell, do you tell each other? Like, right. Oh, by the way, I just had sex with somebody else. Or is it just like, it's open. I can go do whatever I want in my own time. And we just don't talk about it. Well, my friends like to overshare. They prefer more communicate. They prefer more information than none. But I'm sure some people would be like, you know, I don't want to hear the details, but go do whatever you want. I totally trust you. Wear a condom, whatever. But I don't want to hear about it. 
See, I think, I think it would actually be healthier to know everything. I do too. Because otherwise it's your, your brain is just going to be going like, what happened last night? What the, you know, you're clearly a writer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think she smells weird. Who I mean, what if with? your wife was to say, listen, I want to go strip. I've always wanted to go. There's this club. It's no contact. <laughs> if I you knew my wife, you would know why I'm laughing. She was. Ne- she's like you know a Scandinavian Minnesota woman. I don't think she would ever strip. Like just personality wise, it's just yeah. funny to imagine her doing it. Well, let's say she wanted to be a dominatrix. Let's say she wants to come <laughs> along right? and she wants to make four hundred. It's an hour. She's going to spank this man. Yeah. With this other woman, she wants to flog this man. Yeah. And tie him up. And you know, can we just do this? Like I've wanted to do this forever. <laughs> Are you cool with it? I think I would be. I mean, if she presented like a compelling case, like this is like a dream of hers or something she really wanted to do. I mean, I try to think, I like to think that I'm open, but you know, in terms of like uh, where the line is drawn, we would have to have a very clear conversation about what that meant. Exactly. You know, it's just, you know, conversations between adults, anything is possible. Yeah. But yeah, relationships have been affected in, in my book. There are two relationships. There's one uh, with a woman and then there's one with a man. And the man was a comedian. And um, do you care to name names? I, I I will. You will. Sure. Well, who is it? Mark Marin. No shit. No shit. Okay. And this you was know his work. Well, yeah, I'm a Good huge fan. fan of his podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so and this was recently. It was. I guess it was 2010. Okay. I did a grad school, so I got into grad school in 2009. So it's 2010 before I met the other guy. Okay, and so yeah. you okay met in. It was about six months. It was about a six month relationship. Intense. Intense. Well, think about it. Yeah. Well, he seems like an. You what know, are he, we dealing with? He's an emotionally intense guy. He's very. He's a very idiosyncratic guy. Yeah. He's very exciting. He's interesting. He's funny. And so you and you. He's st- complicated. And you stop. And this he's is who you, you stopped work doing the sex work for this relationship. No. No. That was the other one. No, I was deeply in the dominatrix. Uh, I, w- I had a lot of submissive clients, and I was doing the freelance hand job thing with a girlfriend. Okay, it was in the book Kara, and we were seeing clients. But I was for the, the first freelance time, hand job thing. I was doing sensual <laughs> massage. I just feel like that's so silly. Well, well yeah, the terminology. Yeah, I know exactly. I was, you know, Hollywood handshakes. I was. <laughs> I had a, an illustrious career giving Hollywood handshakes. Yeah, and. Um, and I was, I had some submissive clients and I, for the first time I had come to a point in my life where I thought, listen, I'm going to just tell the person that I'm with, this is what I'm doing, you know, in the, and I told him everything that I was doing and what I wasn't doing. And, um, I was honest with him completely and it was really uncomfortable because I think that he was a little uncomfortable and, um, but it gave him a lot of material. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say. Uh, but I mean, like over time, did, did anything change? Did it grind on the relationship? You'd have uh, to ask him. Yeah. I think so. I think he was frightened. I think that... Uh, it would take... I mean, it, honestly, it would I take... he was frightened by it. would it. take a very particular kind of guy to be able to be like, I'm cool with it. It's a tall order. I it, think he wanted to be cool with it more than he was. I, yeah. That's how I think I am. I think I would be like, yeah, I'm cool with it. And then I'd be like... It's 1130. Where is she? It's tough. I mean, you have to see how that could be tough for a guy or girl if the tables were turned. I mean, yeah, but I think there there may have been a certain point where he probably thought, look, I'm not invested enough in this enough to have a conversation that goes, yo, I'm not comfortable with this. Like, would you be willing to stop doing certain things? And that's cool. I think that he, um, it was easier for him to just leave. Um, and that's fair. And I don't think it's inaccurate, but you'll have to ask him. 
We right. never had a direct conversation about, listen, you know, does this upset you? I, I actually, that's not true. And it's in the book. I actually did ask him, like, I need to know your feelings about this because I care about what your feelings are. And he never answered the question. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I think it's just, I think it's tough to know, especially for somebody who, uh, wants to be open and tolerant and accepting, you know, it's one thing to like from a distance be like, yeah, it's cool. People can do whatever they want, live and let live. Right. But then you're actually in an intimate relationship with somebody. Yeah. That's a different beast. Like actually addressing those questions and they're not easy to answer. Well, then here's a question. Why is it, why is it scary to care for someone who seems to have a good head on her shoulders, who's clearly has boundaries and is being really forthright? Why is it hard to care for that person? If they're doing that, if they're giving a hand job to a stranger for $200 an hour. See how hard it is to answer. <laughs> but I think, I think it's not necessarily maybe an issue of being able to care. It's an issue of whether or not, um, you can compute it. You know, can, is, can you be in an intimate relationship knowing that, you know, she's going to leave the house and go out and be intimate physically mm -hmm. with strange men and then come home. You know, like if you were dating a guy and he's like, I'm going to go, you know, have sex with women or the lonely housewives or whatever, would that, mm -hmm. would you have any trouble with it? I mean, I guess maybe you'd have a greater empathy for it because you've done this kind of work. Well, that's why I think that I should have dated a stripper. Yeah. Like magic Mike. I totally should have dated, <laughs> I, I could totally deal with that. <laughs> I would love to date. I mean, it's but comedians are kind of strippers. I mean, I feel yeah, like comedians are strippers. They're emotional. Fact, the one we talked about, he's a stripper. Totally. He bears it all. Yeah. I mean, more than I do. He's yeah. way more vulnerable. Yeah. No, he'll put it out there. I respect that. You yeah. Know? And I think that's he why his podcast, I think that's why his podcast is so popular. You know, what's popular. funny, the last serious relationship I was in, the joke between us was, I think he thought he was getting a crazy stripper and he very much didn't. I'm this very, uh, I'm a runner. I'm, you know, I, there's a lot of efforts I make in my recovery world. I love getting up and doing a job every day. I treat writing like a blue collar job. I'm up. At Plus six. you've been sober for a long time. Very long time. And the funny thing is that the joke between us was that he was the crazy stripper in the relationship. <laughs> and we would laugh about it because he was, he was like very, he was a very erratic person. He changed his mind a lot about it. Very big things. He was very capricious. He was a little mercurial and capricious. Yeah. And I was very like, whoa, what? <laughs> crazy stripper. So do you, you say you're a big runner, you do things in the recovery community, mm -hmm. you seem, you know, you seem like you got your shit together and like that you, you. you have I'm like, trying. yeah, I mean, but I mean, do you go to church? Do you have, no. no, do you do anything to like ground yourself? Because I can imagine it can be kind of depleting, especially if you're with a client who's like, not that awesome. You know, is there ever moments where you're like, this Stripping's is a very small part of my life. It is. Yeah. Okay. Teaching has become bigger. Um, I love working with inner city kids. I'm a huge, uh, promoter of literacy. I worked with incarcerated teenage girls yeah. for three years. I volunteer for right girl. I love working with the incarcerated teenage girls. And so you get balance. Them. It's like, if you didn't have that, that stuff, if you didn't do that other stuff, it, it can be a very depressing world, right? Unless you build a beautiful life around it. Right. And then eventually you're going to say goodbye to it. I really want that to happen. Okay. Well, I want that for you then. Yeah. Uh, and I congratulate you. Yeah. Time is up. Unfortunately. Uh, I congratulate you on this book. Thank I know you. that like a lot of, uh, any memoir, I always feel like a, a certain, um, any book, I always want to kind of salute because I know how much goes into it, but with a memoir where you're really dredging up difficult stuff and, and putting your life out there, 
Uh, it's a big achievement. I imagine there's gotta be some sense of relief. Did you feel like, I mean, it's over, I think it's overdone to say like, Oh, is it cathartic to write this memoir? But there is something about putting, um, putting things down in a book that, um, you, you process them in a way it's kind of putting it behind you. I mean, there's some stuff you'll never be able to put behind you fully, but do you feel any sense of that now that this thing's rolling out into the world? Like I said what I needed to say and I've got, I don't know. Do you know what I'm getting at? I think so. Um, I feel strange about having a book coming out. I've never had a book coming out before. So yeah. this is a weird dancey feeling. This is like you right it's as it launches. Feeling. This is, this is you in your moment, right? As this thing kind of, the sex work is like the smallest part almost of the scary part. I kind of, I've been out about it for so long and I'm expecting fallout. The scary part was euthanizing my mother in the book. That's the risky thing. Yeah. And that's what, um, that's what I'm nervous about. But, um, I'm really, I, I feel like it was, I'm writing about a time in my life that was an important time and, and a good time. And I'm excited to really bring the sex worker community out and really, um, acknowledge them and, and celebrate them and celebrate their stories and sell and mine along with it and do something good for that community. That's largely invisible and stigmatized. Right. And I hope this book does something good in the world. Well, I hope so for too. For sex workers and for the euthanasia issue in California. Okay. Well, listen, um, congratulations again. Thanks for taking the time to Thanks. come talk with this me. This awesome. And Thank uh, you so much. I wish you all the best on the tour and everything else. And for you too. It was a pleasure. Okay. That's it. That's Antonia Crane. Go get her memoir. It's called Spent. It's available now from Barnacle Books. It's a Barnacle book. You can find Antonia online at antoniacrane.com. She's on Twitter where her handle is at Antonia Crane. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music and for the uh, closing music that you hear right now. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to go check out the new uh, site, otherppl.com, and uh, follow it on Twitter, at otherppl. Don't forget about the app, the free official Other People app. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch or Android device, it's the very best way to listen to this program and to access the full archives. So here's how it works. You go get the app. The app is free. You then get access to the most recent 50 episodes free of charge. And then from there, uh, you can sign up for premium for only 2 bucks a month, and you get access to everything. Uh, all 260-something episodes, including my conversations with writers like Cheryl Strayed, Blake Butler, George Saunders, Roxanne Gay, Tao Lin, Rex Pickett, Jess Walter, Edwidge Jadantica, you name it. Uh, so go get the free app and then sign up for premium right there within the app. It takes a minute, and I would greatly appreciate it. Uh, okay, so that was fun, and it's been a busy few days. Can you hear the fatigue in my voice? I got about three hours of sleep last night. Uh, getting this website launched. It's always a, friend, uh, a frenzied undertaking whenever a website is launched. That's, my, uh, that's been my experience. It always involves uh, an incredible amount of busy work and tedium. A lot of caffeine, a lack of sleep, frayed nerves. You're tying up loose ends. You're putting out fires. You're having miniature panic attacks. That sort of thing. But uh, the good news is I think we got the site up and running in good form. For the most part, uh, there's a little bit of housekeeping to do, a few things to get sorted out. But for the most part, I think we're good to go. And uh, we're going to start posting some writing on the site in the days to come. There's, always, uh, there's already something up there, but there's going to be more 
in the days to come. Please remember that Virgil suffered from chronic headaches and that E.M. Forster once said, quote, a novel tells a story, end quote. That's it for now. Thanks again to Antonia Crane and Rare Bird Lit. Go get spent. That's the name of her memoir. And I will be back in touch with you via this program on Sunday. Uh, There will be another guest, another conversation. You know how this works. Another back and forth, some collegial banter. Uh, I'm mansplaining. Apparently I mansplained my last guest, uh, Heather Crystal. Uh, This is according to somebody on Twitter who, uh, you know, expressed dismay that I had mansplained Heather Crystal. Uh, That was the accusation levied. I didn't even know when I read that uh, tweet what mansplained meant. I had to go look it up online. I'm still not sure if I know what it means. I was just talking, you know? That's what, I don't know what I was doing. I was talking. I didn't do anything special. I had no uh, intention of mansplaining. I'm just trying to have a conversation. And uh, with some guests, I talk more. With some guests, I talk less. Uh, I don't know what to tell you. Now I'm all self-conscious. <laughs> I think I'm mansplaining right now. Is that what I'm doing? Mm-hmm.